0: Coming up on Tech Nation, Bloomberg Businessweek investigative journalist Kit Shalell talks about Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. It makes the movie Captain Phillips look pretty tame. Then if you thought that all the new vaccines would be mRNA vaccines you'd be wrong. Dr. Robert Coleman, the co-founder and CEO of Codagenics, shows us how to precisely engineer viruses which can be effective vaccines and can be delivered nasally. You heard me, no needle. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Take 5 with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. In
0: 2013, I spoke with UC San Diego professor Dr. Ajit Barki about denial, self-deception, false beliefs, and the origins of the human mind, which he wrote with the late Danny Brower, a genetics professor at the University of Arizona in Tucson. The question that Professor Brower posed to him nearly two decades ago now was this. With millions of years of evolution, why do humans have such complex mental abilities and other species do not?
2: Instead of asking the usual question, which is what genetic differences or brain differences made us human, Danny turned the question on its head and said, you know, there's a lot of very smart animals and birds that have been around for tens of millions of years and that are quite uh, capable of uh, remarkable intelligence, and yet there's only one human-like species. So how come there isn't a human-like elephant or a human-like crow by now? And his idea was the, sort of the opposite of what you might normally think, that something was stopping everybody in their tracks and that we finally escaped and broke through.
0: The first thing we always think of is self-awareness but animals are self-aware as well, right?
2: Correct, so in fact, that actually supports the theory that is that uh, there's very good evidence in chimpanzees, uh, pretty good evidence in dolphins and some in elephants and some birds, that they know who they are. They can recognize themselves in a mirror. Of course, we can never put ourselves in their heads, but there's pretty good evidence that they they have a sense of personhood. They know who they are. That's been going on presumably for tens of millions of years. The next step beyond that is what we only be humans do, which is that uh, I not only know who I am, I know that you know who you are, and that I know that you know who I am, and so on. Uh And that the audience that may be listening to us uh, knows who we are and that what we're thinking, and we're thinking what they're thinking. So that's this thing called theory of mind. So the question is, uh, why didn't all these other species attain this? Uh, It sounds pretty simple, right? You're aware of yourself, or you're aware of the awareness of another self and the basic idea is that the first time this happens to an individual in a species, the very first time, right now it seems very beneficial to us, but the first time it happens it's actually a very negative thing because once another individual of a species dies, then this individual becomes aware of his or her own mortality, and that would be a very nerve-wracking and potentially an existential crisis. Most importantly, that would uh, diminish the chances that individual would mate and pass their genes on. And so that would be an evolutionary dead end. Now this is the part of the theory that we cannot absolutely prove, obviously. We are saying that these things happened and went into dead ends. And the idea is that we humans finally slipped through by learning to deny our mortality, which made it possible for us to tolerate this knowledge of the deaths of others. You know, there's studies on chimpanzees that say that they recognize other chimpanzees as what's called intentional agents. In other words, they recognize that's another chimpanzee can react to me and so on. What the chimpanzee does not seem to be able to do is to put itself in the head, literally in the mental state of another chimpanzee. The ultimate test of that is what's called a false belief test. In other words, suppose somebody told you a lie, and I listened to that, and I knew that you had the wrong idea in your head, I would know that. In other words, I'm putting myself in your mental shoes. And that's something that uh, the other animals seem to fail at.
0: This 2013 Tech Nation interview features Dr. Ajit Barki, who, with co-author the late Danny Brower, wrote Denial, Self-Deception, False Beliefs, and the Origins of the Human Mind. Today, Dr. Varki is a distinguished professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego, and co-director of the UCSD Salk Institute for Academic Research and Training in Anthropogeny. Yes, anthropogeny. It's the study of human origins. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, does what happens on the high seas stay on the high seas? What if you wanted to scuttle a 20-year-old container ship full of $100 million worth of oil and collect the insurance? Bloomberg journalist and Bloomberg Businessweek writer Kit Chalel talks about Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. There are villains everywhere. Then, while I know the term virus has become a very unpopular word, Dr. Robert Coleman, the co-founder and CEO of Codagenics, is the likely candidate to change your mind. Not only can our traditional virus-based vaccines get better, they can be delivered nasally. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at MindK.com. And now, Kit Shalel. Kit, welcome to Tech Nation.
3: Thanks for having me, Maura.
0: Now, once the pandemic uh, set in, suddenly global supply chain became an everyday term. And uh, just like so many Lego blocks, the world's oceans and the global economy it depended on all these 40-foot container ships. Excuse me, the containers are 40-foot. These container ships are all over the world, and that's what was actually delivering everything to our doors.
3: Yeah, the the, the pandemic gave us a kind of a rare opportunity to realise how important shipping is to us, because I'm sure, you know, me, like many of your listeners... We bought loads of stuff in the lockdown. We, you know, we were bored and we bought loads of things off Amazon and many of those things would have been made in China and shipped to our shores. And you know, it was an opportunity for us all to think about how much we rely on those systems. And we still really do rely on shipping to get us the things we need.
0: Now, people who have seen the 2013 Tom Hanks movie, Captain Phillips, know about these container ships. And let's describe the one we're going to talk about today.
3: So the Brillante Virtuoso is the ship at the center of our book, and it's uh, a gigantic rusting oil tanker, I guess is the best way to describe it. The length of a couple of football fields, uh, the side of the hull, maybe 50, 60 feet tall, big enough to carry a million barrels of oil and big enough that if you wanted to go for your morning exercise, you could comfortably jog around the outside. Uh, Really an enormous thing.
0: Now, you said it was old, but is it Is it still good? It's going to still go on for years? Is there a lifetime on these ships?
3: Yeah, these these big commercial vessels definitely have uh, a working life. And the Brillante Virtuoso was coming to the end of its usefulness. It was maybe 20 years old. um, But actually, more importantly than that, it wasn't in great shape. It hadn't been that well cared for. The engine was faulty and prone to breaking down. You know, it hadn't been well-maintained. It was coming to the last couple of years of its life before it would be sent off to be scrapped.
0: So in this story, it's, it loads up all this oil, $100 million worth of oil, mm. in a, a port in the Crimea, still Ukraine at that point, And it's going to go through the Suez Canal to eastern China. But everybody knows that once you come through the Suez Canal, you can run into Somali pirates
3: back in 2011 which, which is uh, which is when our book it starts the suez canal was was pretty much the most dangerous place for a large commercial ship on the planet every couple of days somali pirates would attempt to hijack one of the 50 to 100 large ships that that transit the suez canal every day and uh, so it was a nervous time for everyone there are sort of certain security measures that you're expected to take when you pass through. But there's a definite sense that you take your life in your hand. At that particular moment in time, all the sailors would have been thinking about piracy.
0: Now, you can see the preparations in the Captain Phillips movie. I mean, there's, you know, they're getting ready with water guns. They've got mm-hmm. all kinds of, you know, barbed wire. They're, they're all set for this. But uh, in a in a departure... From the Captain Phillips movie, uh, when a fast boat of men with Kalashnikovs approach you and say, let down your ladder, you don't do it.
3: <laughs> I mean, look, I'll be honest.
0: Even I know that.
3: <laughs> I I, I wouldn't. Um, it would seem to set off red flags for me. Uh, uh, the, and bear in mind, this is the Berlante was waiting for a security guard to come and help it come through this really dangerous area. And so it's the middle of the night. It's, it's around midnight when this vessel approaches. And, you know, the men on board the little boat that speeds up are wearing masks and carrying long rifles. You know, they look like they're in sort of camouflage gear. Um, it would seem to be an atrociously bad idea to let them on board. But that's exactly what the captain ordered. And it's because the men identified themselves as being the security guards. We're the security, they said. And so they were invited on board.
0: What happened then? Take it, take us through it.
3: Well, almost immediately on uh, them lowering the ladder and the armed men coming on board, they pointed their rifles at the Filipino crew of the Berlante Virtuoso. They rounded everyone up. Uh, and they locked them in the television room, which is like the crew hangout, and they took the Filipino captain, an engineer, away to the deck of the ship and you know For the next period of three or four hours, kind of chaos ensued the The engine started up then then they stopped, there were gunshots, the crew could hear gunshots, and then suddenly an enormous explosion, and uh, black smoke starts spewing into the TV room where all the, all the sailors are being held and they, they come out, they they're forced to flee. The pirates have gone. The captain's tied up on the bridge and this vessel carrying, you know, a hundred million barrels of oil is burning.
0: And now we're on page 27. (laughs) 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 And there's more detail in there. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, And so let's, let's take quick departure here. You know, you mentioned the Filipino crew um on the economic front i was shocked to hear how much they were paid and how much they had to work had to sign on to this proposition
3: yeah um the the role of the sailors is really interesting in modern shipping it used to be that the people crewing the ships that gave us the things that we buy when we go to the shop you know they would be large numbers of british or american or french or south african sailors from all over the world but but shipping has has become this brutally competitive industry, this relentless drive to lower costs, and you know we all benefit from that. There's a reason that I can afford to have in my pockets a phone containing you know microchips assembled in Asia, uh, and that stuff can flow through to our markets so cheaply and efficiently, in part because of this drive to keep costs down. It's an amazing system, but a, a sort of human consequence of all that is that. The sailors, um, they don't earn very much money at all. Uh, and they often come from developing countries with very low incomes. The Philippines is a huge one. India, Pakistan, um, places like that, places where people are willing to be away from their families for nine months at a time and earn almost no money. You know, actually, it's, it's a better income than you might earn otherwise in, in the Philippines, which is why so many of them become sailors.
0: So most of the crew go up on to the bridge and they find mm. the uh, captain. And the ship's burning. So what do you do with a ship? You get off the ship. Now, the ship may be burning, but whenever you have a ship burning, now let's talk about insurance. And for centuries now, we thought of ships at sea, well, they'd be insured by Lloyd's of London. Lloyd's of London is involved, but what I didn't know, Lloyd's of London is not an insurance company.
3: Yeah, Lloyd's of London is, is one of the world's most important financial markets really it 's um it 's the global center of all kinds of insurance, specifically the kinds of insurance you need for the really big stuff. If you want to launch a satellite or you you, you want to start a you know an n f l franchise and you need insurance for a large sum of money, any complicated risk. You have to come to Lloyd's. Lloyd's is the place you come. And it's, it's a marketplace, not a company that sells insurance. So all the world's biggest insurers, the likes of, you know, Alliance, Prudential, all the names that we know well, they all have operations at Lloyd's and there they divide up each one of those risks, each one of those insured cases, they split it up between them. And so they can insure almost anything. And, and literally almost anything has been insured at Lloyd's. They will insure if you're a rock star, they, they'll insure your voice. Bruce Springsteen's voice was once insured at Lloyd's. Uh, David Beckham, famous British soccer player, his legs were insured at Lloyd's. And that, that runs through from, you know, celebrity stuff through to gigantic oil tankers that might be selling oil from Ukraine and China.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Bloomberg journalist and Bloomberg Businessweek writer Kit Shalel. You may know him from his investigative work in Chinese state hackers, questionable Nigerian oil deals, and Irish sectarian gangsters. With Bloomberg Businessweek writer and editor Matthew Campbell, he's written Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. Well, with insurance comes investigations, and David Mockett enters the picture while salvage is already underway.
3: Yes, um, what you've got with the Berlante Virtuoso is a really strange incident. Apparently, pirates board in the middle of the night. They, for whatever reason, start a fire that ultimately destroys the vessel, uh, and then they flee. Um, And, you know, this doesn't look much like normal Somali piracy. It's not what they do in Captain Phillips why would you take possession of this prized vessel worth $100 million and counting and then blow it up and leave? It, it doesn't make any sense. So the, right from the start, the insurers who were involved with the vessel, you know, they had questions. They wanted to know what happened. And the way you find out what happens at sea, if there's an accident or a fire, is you hire a maritime surveyor. And David Mockett was this British eccentric British guy who lived in Yemen, just a few miles away in the port of Aden, and so uh, the insurance syndicate hired him to go out, put his boots on the on the deck, uh, and try and find out what happened.
0: And he looks around, gets off the boat. Then David Market's car blows up.
3: David was murdered in the middle of his investigation, only a few days after he'd done a survey of the Brillante Virtuoso, he'd taken his photographs, he'd sent an initial report to London saying he had doubts about what what he'd seen. Only a few days later, very sadly, he was assassinated by a bomb that was placed under his car uh, and killed instantly. And that event really um, forms the basis of the book and, and the consequences of that moment have been felt around the world for years afterwards.
0: But I do want to ask about a number of aspects that I think we we don't quite understand or didn't know before. Um, for instance, when a ship is in distress, uh, there's an automatic signaling system that can get triggered and it goes far and wide.
3: Yeah, but well, the reason for that is that, um, you know, a, a large ship getting in trouble is a, is a major international event. Uh, let's take the example of the Brillante Virtuoso. It's carrying a million barrels of oil. Um, if the fire on board destroys the vessel to such an extent that it spills oil all over the Gulf of Aden, you're looking at a billion dollar cleanup, you know, catastrophic damage, uh, a major geopolitical event. So there has to be a whole infrastructure in place to deal with these gigantic ships when they get into trouble and um, one of the, the early alarm systems that they use specifically for piracy is a security button that's hidden in the bridge. It's literally a hidden button like like you'd have in a gas station to alert the police that you're being robbed. It's a similar deal. There's a, there's a, there's a secret button that gets pressed. And that, that button instantly sends out information to all the naval forces in the area, the local authorities, the various security uh, organizations that, that operate in the maritime world and tells them there's a problem.
0: And so we start on this huge amount of information that's flowing, different players, some of whom we know or have to be uncovered, and the impact of who owns the ship, that suddenly becomes an issue. How do you track who owns the ship?
3: Yeah, this this incident of piracy and the burning of the Brillante sets off a chain of events that echoes from Dubai to the Philippines, to London, to New York and Greece, you know, when you've got a vessel this size, the financial interests involved are enormous. And, you know, the implications for a whole lot of people are are, are huge as well. And so a whole chain of events kicks off and everyone with a financial interest in the vessel, everyone, all its owners, all the people trading the oil, they all want to know what happened and they all need some sort of resolution.
0: Not only that, it's insurance. So I'm not at fault. Pay me. So everybody's deciding everybody else is at fault, right?
3: Yeah, the I mean the whole the whole purpose of insurance uh, often is is blame. What's the cause of an incident? Um, is this incident covered by an insurance policy? Which you know sounds like a kind of technical arcane question to ask, um, but in the case of a ship like the Brillante Virtuoso that's attacked, that can be the difference between the ship owner receiving eighty to a hundred million dollars from a Lloyd syndicate or the ship owner getting nothing and maybe even potentially being charged with a crime. So, you know, it's a very high-stakes game that gets played.
0: We also associate rules with countries. And where the ship was, was intentionally docked off of Yemen, but not inside Yemen. I mean, how does this work in the world? There is no country. There's no law to decide whose country does this follow
3: yeah that's it's often said that um the the open seas are lawless Um we you know we say this in the book it's 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 not strictly true but to all practical purposes it is when you're out on the open ocean there's no police force there's no federal agency that's governing your behavior really you know on these vessels the captain <laughs> is has godlike authority over his crew and All sorts of misdemeanors happen out on the open ocean that that never go punished. It's a whole problem in itself. Technically, the law that governs what happens on a ship is uh, the law of the flag that's flying on the deck. Um, So if you're flying a US flag and you're registered in the US, US law applies to what happens on the ship but many many years ago you know the major ship owners stopped flying the flags of the likes of the US and the UK it was too expensive too much hassle you know too many people wanting to uh, to inspect your vessel so they ditched that years ago in favor of what are called flags of convenience which is much cheaper it's lower costs lower regulation most ships these days will be flying either the flag of panama or Liberia and West Africa, which is what the flag that was flying on the Berlante Virtuoso.
0: There's another aspect here that I was interested in throughout this story. There are so many different villains. (laughs) It's like not one and who hired a couple. There are villains everywhere. I was very touched with the story you told about how you and your co-author, who interviewed like 75 people and... Went over tens of thousands of court documents. There was pages of court court documents. I mean, there was there's an enormous effort to research all of this, and it took you four years. And somewhere in the middle, you contact one of the Filipino crewmen, who say, "Well, I told the story, and uh, well, you tell the story about what he did."
3: Yeah, this was an amazing moment. Um, Matt and I had been you know, up to our necks in the Brillante Virtuoso and all the criminality that came on this one ship, which you'll have to read the book to discover that, you know, more than one crime, let's just say, happened on board this vessel. And like you say, more, you know, dozens of villains involved. We'd been chasing around after the ship to find out what really happened and to unravel the mystery for years. Um, And a key moment came when, you know, we went through the list of crewmen and tried to find them all. And Matt happened to find one of them on Facebook, You know, for all the investigative reporting that you hear about, it comes down to Facebook. Filipino sailors use Facebook because it allows them, I guess, to stay in contact with their families and see pictures of their kids. Matt found the sailor who actually had lowered the ladder to the pirates back in 2011. And he was at that moment, he was on a vessel uh, anchored off the coast of France. Uh, And almost immediately, he started telling this incredible story of, you know, I've been afraid for my life for years because of what happened that night. Um, I was encouraged. I was threatened into telling a false account of what happened. But now I'm ready to tell the truth. I'm not afraid to die. And that conversation, you know, kicked off uh, a whole sequence of events involving the police and the insurance companies uh, that made life really complicated for a while.
0: Well, you know, he wasn't the only one that uh, was threatened. Um, Both of you were warned on more than one occasion. That uh, to stop doing this investigation, how were you warned, and and when did you know to take it seriously?
3: Well, I, I I guess the way to answer that is to is to understand the nature of modern shipping, and you know I'd assumed that the the, the days of pirates and swashbuckling misdeeds on the ocean had been consigned to history. You know, every, everything's high tech these days; everything's transparent. But the, the deeper we delved into the story of this one ship, the more I discovered that simply isn't true. On the fringes of shipping, there's a thriving criminal underworld and, um, shipping has become so vast and lucrative that the criminals who operate in that space, they've grown in, in, in sophistication and ambition in lockstep with the booming global trade. So shipping fraud is multiple billion dollar business. It involves organized crime groups from across the world. Um, It's a dangerous game. Uh, So, you know, we we became aware of witnesses in this case being threatened. We learned that um, one of the lawyers involved had been badly beaten in Greece by unknown assailants. Um, There was a guy who had to be flown out of Yemen by armed guards, under armed guards, because he was told his life was was at risk. You know, we're talking about the kind of the really dark and dangerous stuff that you see in the movies. And I was, as journalists, you know, we, we're we're somewhat removed from that. We are much less vulnerable than, say, a Filipino sailor, or you know, someone operating out of the port in Piraeus in Greece. But we were we were often warned, particularly by the police, um, that we were getting into territory that was really genuinely dangerous. And it, yeah, it was a police officer who told us, you know don't go on holiday to greece anytime soon.
0: <laughs> well there's lots of places you could travel to discover what was going on with this situation. Where did you travel to?
3: That's a good question. Um the nature of this of this criminal conspiracy that we unravel in the book was we you know a genuine international enterprise involving you know political elements in Yemen, the top levels of greek shipping there were any number of places that we that we could have gone. We unfortunately weren't able to go to Yemen. You know, when this ship was attacked, um, Yemen was on the cusp of a, an incredibly violent and brutal civil war that's that's still playing out all these years later. And not only was it not safe for me and Matt to travel to Yemen, but I'm not sure what. Realistically, what what answers we could have gotten if we had done that? Um, it turned out that one of the most useful places for us to travel was Egypt. Um, I I took a trip to Cairo. I met some important sources there. Um, in after the outbreak of war in Yemen, a lot of the people associated with the old regime fled, and lots of them ended up in Cairo. So I had some some very interesting reporting adventures in you know one of the more dangerous neighborhoods of Cairo, meeting meeting Yemeni citizens who were in hiding.
0: Bloomberg Businessweek investigative journalist Kit Shalel is the author of Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. We'll talk more after a break. The BiotechNation podcast individually can be found at biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcasts of whole Technation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, Dr. Robert Coleman, the CEO of Codagenics, shows us how a new era of how we develop vaccines has arrived. It's easier to understand than you think. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm speaking with Bloomberg investigative journalist and Bloomberg Businessweek writer Kit Shalell with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Matthew Campbell. He's written Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. Well, you know, you are known for covering some very interesting people. (laughs) I <laughs> will say that. Uh, what did you learn from this that you perhaps did not know before about being a, an investigative journalist?
3: Oh, wow. Um, well, I've never worked on a story like this in terms of the fear that I encountered. You know, as, as, a, as a journalist at Bloomberg, doing investigations, writing magazine features, you're often straying its territory that people would rather you didn't. So you become accustomed to you know, being threatened, having angry letters from lawyers, uh, being told generally that you're a nuisance and to go away. But um, it was actually quite humbling and frightening, in this case, talking to people who had much more at stake than their reputations and a bit of money. This is this was life and death. Um, the terror that we encountered for people who, just even when you utter the words, brillante virtuoso, the look people would give us or what they would say, um, was like nothing I've ever encountered. And it's very difficult to manage that. You know, obviously you don't want to put people at risk in pursuit of a journalistic enterprise. But, you know, at the same time, both Matt and I felt an obligation to get the truth here, to to find out what really happened. So j- it was, it was a, a learning experience juggling those two things.
0: Well, uh, Kit, thank you so much for coming in. I-, I hope you come back on Tech Nation. You're welcome anytime. Thanks for having me. Bloomberg journalist and Bloomberg Businessweek writer Kit Shalel is the co-author of Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. It's published by Portfolio Penguin. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Codagenics of Farmingdale, New York, has developed the technology to precisely engineer viruses to do all sorts of things. Its current work to develop a COVID vaccine based not on that versatile newcomer mRNA, but rather as a traditional virus-based vaccine, is not at all traditional. It would have protected against the Omicron variants even before there was an Omicron variant. In addition, it's delivered nasally. That's right, no needle. And its development now in phase three is now being supported by the World Health Organization. But there's more. The efforts of Codagenics are wide ranging. New vaccines for RSV, influenza, yellow fever, dengue and Zika. Also, viral-based therapeutics for cancer and more. What's important is understanding how these viruses can be engineered to have characteristics which not only deliver potency, but also are incapable of mutating into undesirable forms. It's called rational virus design. Dr. Robert Coleman is the co-founder and CEO of Cotagenics. He'll explain how this approach changes what's possible in vaccine development and therapeutics in general. And it further has the ability to respond quickly and directly, as opposed to the trial and error method used before. Dr. Robert Coleman. Rob, welcome to the program. I'm Moira. Before we get into what we can do today with better technology, I think we pretty much... Have all had multiple vaccinations at this point, right up to, and including being vaccinated for covid, but our vaccinations started early, you know for measles and polio, and the list goes on. How would you characterize these vaccines you know that we took all throughout our lives uh, and how were they developed
4: right that's a that's a great question, so you know that those traditional vaccines have been extraordinarily effective at preventing disease even starting when when you were very young. And the best class of those sort of early childhood vaccines that we've all received, our children may have received what are what are called live attenuated or weakened versions of the virus that you're trying to protect against. So they would take, it's actually kind of amazing to believe it was really done through trial and error, right? So they would take the measles virus and they would passage it either at cold temperatures or in chicken cells. And it would start to not like humans so much and it would convert and it would start to mutate away from humans towards chickens. And then we'd actually use that virus to vaccinate ourselves against measles. And so those traditional vaccines have been amazing at preventing disease um, because they are live weakened versions of the virus. But they were really made through complete trial and error, random mutation of really unknown results in the virus. <laughs> Chickens, just,
0: Chickens were involved yeah. in, their, in their development. They were, they were crucial
4: like... to really one of the biggest advancements of humankind, right, has been for vaccination. And it's really through random changes, which is just kind of amazing to think about.
0: And once you get one of those vaccines, this is what blows me away. How is the vaccine manufactured? How is it produced?
4: they don't all use the same exact system, but some still are used. So for example, a yellow fever vaccine is still manufactured in embryonated chicken eggs, where you inject the egg with a little bit of virus, you wait a few weeks, you harvest the vaccine stream from the egg, almost like an egg frappuccino. And that's what we're still using as a vaccine. And it's because we have to use the same system that made those traditional live vaccines. So that's also sort of ripe for, for innovation. But it's amazing to think about that a lot of these live vaccines that we still use sort of have an antiquated approach for production.
0: Let me ask you, in COVID, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was called a viral vector vaccine. Is is that the same kind of thing?
4: Uh, it's not exactly the same. They use a weakened virus, but instead it's more like a Trojan horse. So in that instance, Johnson & Johnson is using a virus called adenovirus, as a way to deliver the spike protein to your immune system. So it wasn't like they took SARS-CoV-2 and put it in chickens for for weeks on end. So they had an adenovirus expressing a piece of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID to get your immune system to make an immune response against spike. So There's a little subtle difference there between a traditional weak virus or live attenuated that has all of the proteins that you want to go against and the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which I sort of like to call a Trojan horse that expresses just spike of the that you're trying to protect against.
0: And don't forget, for all those decades, we did not have the tools to go in and edit a virus, do any of those things. We had to keep trying until we got something that, oh, that works. And then we'll we'll keep that. So we just didn't have the tools that we have today. So 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 we can see that the uh, the viral vaccines are are moving ahead. At the same time, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine was only sixty six percent effective, while the other two COVID vaccines here in the United States, at least, were Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech, which are mRNA vaccines. Completely different technology. We're over 90% effective. Does that mean that these viral vaccines will be a thing of the past uh, and we'll just be going with the mRNA vaccines?
4: Um, I I don't think so. Um, Of course, I'm slightly biased, but I mean, the common similarity between the mRNA and Johnson Johnson vaccine is what I call, they're really just antigen delivery systems, right? They're bringing an antigen to your immune system in order to engage it and have it make a lot of antibodies against said antigen that they want to target. So spike in the case of of the COVID vaccines. And the mRNA is just very efficient at doing that. But I think we see with the current trend in COVID and variants emerging and need to update those vaccines that there's still an avenue if we can somehow figure out to make better live vaccines um, that may express not just spike but lots and lots of proteins of the virus.
0: Now, tell us what codogenic does.
4: Well, that's, I mean, so sort of to perfectly dovetail, thank you, Maura, is that, you know, if you think back to how those for traditional live vaccines were made, well, or why were they so great is because they weren't just expressing the spike of the virus. It's actually mimicking the wild type virus. So it's expressing all proteins of the virus. And that's sort of the, the next generation codigenics approach is those traditional va- vaccines Maybe limited in their genetic stability, so they were randomly mutated to become vaccines. And what Codagenics has been able to do is we found a way to recode the DNA of a virus such that it's genetically stable. Now it will not revert, and it can actually be used as a vaccine that expresses not taking COVID for example, not just spike, but all the proteins of SARS-CoV-2 to get all the benefits of a traditional live vaccine, right? Spike, immune response, but immune response to all proteins of the virus.
0: Well, it occurs to me that first of all, you can take the virus you're after and completely decode its DNA.
4: Yes, so it's actually a completely digital. So the way Codagenics really does it is the commonality for all human virus is your body, your nose, take COVID for example, or your cells, they wanna come in, or the virus wants to come in, make a trillion copies of itself in as little as eight hours, Now that's a big number, but the virus wants that process to be very, very efficient. So it's made its genes very, very favorable for translation efficiency or production in the human host cell. And so what we've done is our platform, unlike the other platforms, which I classify as antigen delivery, Ours is really a software, so we have now understand how you can encode genes for very, very favorable translation or production in the human body, and how you can encode a gene for very, very slow translation in the human body. And so what we can do is we can take the DNA sequence of a virus that's very fast, we can recode it for slow translation, we can insert that piece of DNA back into their genome. And now we've converted wild type pathogen virus that makes you very sick into live attenuated vaccine. And it's universally applicable to viruses because it's not focused on one protein. It's not focused on random mutation. Instead, it's an algorithm that understands how to recode its DNA for, for slow translation.
0: So simply by slowing down how fast it replicates, you're yes. weakening it, number yeah. one. Yeah. So when you say, okay, in in one sense, if they could have done that hundred years ago, what great shape they would have been. How do we slow down the virus? And then right now we're saying, well, what do we have to hit? You know, we're trying to get very excited about it. And you're saying, wait a minute, there's a lot of stuff we may not know. If we can slow down the whole thing, then the aspects that we don't yet understand won't matter because they'll be engaged in the human host. Right. Wow, I gotta write on that. I like that. I don't, so sometimes they say, well, it's not like that at all. So I'm really thrilled. I'm really thrilled. Now I just want to ask a slightly different question here. I know that the, the Pfizer BioNTech and the Moderna uh, COVID vaccines had to be in these special freezers from the or, or refrigerators. Deep, deep freeze, deep, deep cold from the point they were refrigerated to the point of delivery. Is that also true with these viral vaccines?
4: Uh, no, that's actually, so Yet yeah, you can see that in order to keep the RNA stable, they have to use minus 80 degrees Celsius freezers. They have to ensure that the repository has those freezers. You see that they want to make the, expand this ultra cold chain to sort of increase mRNA uptake around the globe. One of the best aspects of weak virus vaccines, is that they usually only require a standard freezer or refrigerator. Sometimes they can even be lyophilized or turned into powder that can be reconstituted. And as you can see, and sort of one of the best examples for this is smallpox, right? In order to eradicate smallpox, they had a very, you know, standard refrigeration or lyophilization for the vaccine. They didn't need to make freezer farms around the world uh, in order to eradicate smallpox. And so that's sort of one of the traditional benefits and global access for live vaccines is their ability to be, you know, stored in sort of standard conditions.
0: Now, you've just finished phase two, going into phase three. I think you've started phase three, the last phase of clinical trial before approval um, uh, on your own COVID vaccine. And I understand that this work at at Codagenics is supported by... The WHO now there are easily a dozen COVID vaccines around the world. Why are they supporting your particular endeavor?
4: Well, that's a that's a good question. It sort of you know speaks to your last point. And I think the actual number on the WHO chart is 194 next generation vaccine candidates. And why did they select Codagenics was. Well, firstly, they I think the WHO recognizes the benefit of live vaccines, right, and what they're capable of doing. But more importantly, what we've been able to show with our COVID vaccine, for well, firstly, it's intranasal. Um, so it can, has a potential to block transmission, induce mucosal immunity. But we showed in our phase one was demonstration of efficacy or potential for efficacy, excuse me potential for a global distribution. So we're partnered with Serum Institute India that has massive ability for commercial scale of the product. But more importantly, some of the data from our phase one was that we showed, not only did we show 100% antibody or serial response rate in the participants, we showed the induction of mucosal immunity that could slow down replication of a SARS-CoV-2 virus. And to me, the coolest piece of data that sort of circle back, circles back to your original question, Moira, is when we looked at the T cells or the cellular immune system response to our vaccine, we saw that all of the participants, or on average, the participants in the vaccinated group made a five-fold increase in their anti-Omicron cellular immune response.
0: So it included Omicron,
4: <laughs> well the cool well I didn't actually get to the coolest part yet. The what? coolest part is that this trial was done in early 2021. So this is when the individuals were being vaccinated. When we measured their T-cell response was towards the end of 21, but they made this omicron response before the omicron strain was actually prevalent. And they made the response to all the other proteins of SARS-CoV-2, not just spike and And so this is why sometimes live vaccines are called the sort of gold standard, where they may only require a few doses. They provide very, very long-term immunity. It's because they cover the span of the proteins in the virus. And to me, that's the coolest thing, right? Our vaccine recipients made an anti-Omicron cellular immune response before the virus was even on the scene.
0: Well, that is exciting. I have to tell you, there are some people listening, a few of my friends among them who held out for the Johnson and Johnson virus because it was only one shot. Big strapping guys who were afraid. They said, just give me one shot. So when they hear this is internasal, you're just gonna spray this up my nose. They'll be the first in line. You know, it's like so you don't have to have a shot. And we don't know how big the uh, immunity will be, but we know that you're not just focused on the one spike protein you're saying well let's just take the whole cell let's just take the whole virus and uh and and use that that's very exciting
4: especially because the proteins that so why are variants emerging is because the spike protein is the virus that is the protein of the virus that mutates the most right trying to avoid antibodies all the other proteins that sort of run that the machinery of the virus they mutate very very slowly And that's actually what you make your cellular immune response against. And so if you can have vaccines that induce cellular immunity to the the proteins that don't mutate as rapidly, you can get this very, very, very broad immune response. And we're hoping to show that in the the WHO trial, it's a placebo-controlled trial, it's occurring Africa, potentially South America, potentially Southeast Asia. And right now we're, you know... It has a daunting task in the sense that it's a placebo controlled trial looking for efficacy against Omicron. And I think we have real potential to do that based on what we saw in, in our early clinical development.
0: So now let's uh talk about vaccines and cancer. Cancer is not an infectious disease. I mean, we don't usually think of cancer and vaccines. What are you doing in that space?
4: Yeah, well, I would you know, I think sometimes people see the codigenics oncology vertical that we're growing. And they use the word cancer vaccine. It's not actually a cancer vaccine. Instead, we're designing viruses that we can inject into tumors that help recruit the immune system to the tumor and help clear the tumor. So it's really a next-generation immune oncology therapy. It's not a cancer vaccine. Um, sorry to correct you, but uh, okay.
0: No, it's all right.
4: <laughs> <laughs> what we found, though, is that what we found is that the algorithm. Once we started designing these viruses for to be safe and immunogenic vaccines, we also learned that the algorithm that understands the human genome and how to encode the genes can also be used when appropriately implemented to design viruses that are very, very potent treatments for solid tumors. And I think the way to sort of separate what Codagenics is doing from other, you know, the fields called oncolytic viruses or viruses to treat cancer is that, We can take the inverse the opposite approach so most people have one virus and they're trying to see which cancers they work in and so we can leverage codagenics algorithm to instead take the opposite approach pick a cancer screen viruses design a cancer against uh, excuse me a virus against said cancer And now we've had a custom immune oncology agent for whatever cancer indication you're pursuing and and sort of really codagenics is in the virus design business we leverage the human genome, we leverage synthetic biology, the, the ability to design DNA however we want, and now we can design viruses, either turning them into prophylactic vaccines to protect against infectious diseases like COVID or RSV or dengue, or we can use the same algorithm to design a virus that's safe and also really likes to infect, kill, and, and recruit the immune system to a tumor.
0: Now, let me get this straight. In all of these cases, you are building, engineering, designing viruses. And it's when you finally get to something you like, you take that virus and you replicate the virus. And that virus is exactly what you're injecting in the case of of the the COVID vaccine uh, and its trial now. You're injecting that internasally right into my nose. Yes. Just giving me the virus.
4: But we've been, sh- I mean... It wasn't right off the shelf, right? First, we had to show to the regulators that it was safe and, you know, safe and preclinical. It was safe in phase one. And and also to sort of circle back to the initial problem that Codagenics can solve is that, keep in mind, you know, those traditional live vaccines usually rely, or traditional live weak vaccines usually rely on a limited number of genetic changes. What Codagenics does is we insert hundreds, sometimes thousands of genetic changes that make the virus unable to revert, and so we can actually pull the vaccine strain out of the noses from our COVID trial. Now, there was a little bit in there; it, it wasn't very high level. Every the uh, the safety profile was great, but more importantly, when we pulled the vaccine out, there were no mutations in the in the designed region showing. We uh, really proving the concept of supreme genetics, uh, genetic stability using our design approach
0: so once you spray it in my nose i got it in my nose forever
4: no 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 no, no. It, it goes <laughs> so the wild type would be there for eight nine days you know orders of magnitude shedding capable of spread right to other individuals ours was there for a few days below for the most part the threshold for spread and it disappeared within a few days too but when we would wait for the tail end to see if we could find it we would sequence you know with with um we would we would sequence the virus and we could show there were no mutations uh which i think the regulators really responded to as well
0: how many people work at Codagenics?
4: uh right now we're at Twenty-eight individuals, twenty-eight um,
0: people, and growing and growing. <laughs> well, you're not going to get to twenty-eight thousand in the next week. You got twenty-eight no. people. You've partnered with people. You're sponsored. You've partnered with Serum Institute India. You've got, and that's just this is just on the COVID. And you've got uh, WHO supporting you. Uh, you've got all of the other vaccines that you're working on. I'm very interested. How did Codagenics get started? Who, were, who who was involved? How did this all come to be?
4: Well, yeah, that's that's a great question, too. So we came from... So I was actually the graduate student pipetting, you know, some of the first work that became the core of Codagenics. My other co-founder, uh, Stefan Mueller, our St- chief scientific officer, to me, one of the most pivotal, you know, players in early synthetic biology. And then the third founder, Eckard Wimmer, was the first to actually synthesize a virus completely from small oligonucleotides, National Academy of Science members. So the three of us nucleated the company. We raised our initial money from NIH, and then investors got interested. So the company started at just two individuals, and now we're up, up to 28. And we emerged from, you know, probably one of the earliest synthetic biology labs there was at Eckers Lab at Stony Brook University.
0: Well, let me let me uh, translate a little of this. Um, sure. uh, synthetic biology is when you literally, uh, you don't just deal with a small part of a virus or a small part of DNA uh, in any kind of cell. Um, it means that you program the whole thing. You take yes. the whole thing and you program the whole thing, and it works, and it, it's alive. So that's part of it. But I have never heard before that ha- anyone saying that they... they, they these people got together and nucleated the company. <laughs> <laughs> what you did is you gave it the whole DNA and that's how the company got started in a, in yes. a synthetic biology sense.
4: <laughs> sure. Exactly. I mean, the the thing is if the, what you think about what Eckerd did in our lab did with that viral synthesis was, you know, if you could, take small pieces of DNA that you essentially ordered through your computer and you could stitch that together to make a virus, you're no longer bound by this to the natural sequence of the virus to make designs, to learn, to mutate it, right? Those are traditional weak vaccines, really are just variations of the natural sequence, right? They were just mutated in a chicken, as we said, or cold temperatures. If you can order the virus and design it on your computer, you can now mutate it extensively and that's really what Codogenics has done we understand how to encode human genes to slow them down and now we can leverage our experience with stitching this design dna into a virus and now we've developed a platform that again is not an antigen delivery right we're not using adenovirus to carry spike or a virus like particle we have an algorithm where you input the wild type sequence it gets redesigned into a slow New sequence that has hundreds of mutations that, when we put back it in, into the virus, it converts it from wild type that makes you sick into one that can be an effective vaccine, presenting all proteins to the, to the immune system.
0: Well, I I now understand why your motto is uh, engineering viruses to transform global health. But I'd like to I'd like to suggest another one. Just uh, it's really sure. simple: chicken free. I think <laughs> I think that's where you should go with that. I can see the logo. I can see it. I want one of the T-shirts when you do your chicken free okay. chicken free T-shirt campaign. We'll make okay. some. <laughs> Rob. Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and talk to us again.
4: Now, I would love to give you an update sometime in the new year on, on that as the data is rolling in across the programs. more.
0: Dr. Robert Coleman is the co-founder and CEO of Codagenics in Farmingdale, New York. Since this recording, the rise of RSV in infants and young children and the impact of increased hospitalizations in pediatric wards has been widely reported in the mainstream media. There are no currently approved vaccines. Cotogenic's nasally delivered RSV vaccine has been fast-tracked by the FDA. The initial study in healthy children aged six months to five years is expected to begin in early 2023 after this year's RSV season, with a confirming study in the 2023-2024 RSV season. More information is available at Codagenics.com. That's Coda, C-O-D-A, Genics, G-E-N-I-X. Codagenics.com. For Biotechnician, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.